From Schwartz Media, I'm Ange McCormack. This is 7am. 2024 will be democracy's biggest year. Over 4 billion people could head to the polls, from major battles in the US and India to fierce contests in South Africa and Indonesia. One person watching this closely is Anne Applebaum. She's someone who was calling out authoritarianism spreading around the world while Western leaders were still shaking hands with Vladimir Putin. So where could the world's politics be heading this year? Today, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and writer for The Atlantic, Anne Applebaum, on democracy's biggest test and how it can survive. It's Friday, February 2nd. Narendra Modi has taken the crease and he's playing like a batsman in supreme form. The Prime Minister on Thursday kicked off his campaign for the 2024 election. The ruling South African ANC African National Congress Party held its election manifesto review in Soweto Sunday. Vladimir Putin saying he will run again for president. I will not hide the fact that at different times I had different thoughts. Now you are right. This is the time when the decision needs to be made. I will run for the post of President of the Russian Federation. And there are so many elections coming up this year. And when we take a look at who's running for election, there are a lot of candidates on the various ballots that people have described as being authoritarian. You've got Modi in India, of course, Trump in the US, Russia's having an election. What do you think this year could tell us about where our politics might be heading? Do you think we're seeing a kind of global shift to the right? I wouldn't describe it as a global shift to the right. Um, I would describe it as people reacting to their sense of chaos and cacophony by choosing autocratic leaders. Um, And so, for example, in Mexico, the issue is not the emergence of an autocratic far right, but of an autocratic left. So you have a the current president of Mexico would describe himself as left wing, comes from the Mexican left. So an extreme leftist and a nationalist will be the next president of Mexico. He won in a landslide. Uh, his name is Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Let's get to And has been someone who's pushed back on uh, transparency in Mexico, has tried to undermine the independent judiciary, tried to, in Mexico has an, has an independent electoral body that judges and, and organizes elections. He tried to undermine that. Critics say the changes threaten the independence of Mexico's National Electoral Institute, or INE, which oversees federal elections. Uh, He can't be on the ballot because Mexico has one-term presidents, but he has a successor. And she's thought to be carrying on those ideas. So it is true that you see a an undermining of democratic institutions in a lot of different ways in different places. The issue is that all of these elections are still taking place in a world in which we really haven't got to grips with the way conversation and political debate have been changed by social media and also by changes in the mass media. The way we now speak, and this is true whether it's in Indonesia, which also has an election this year, or in India, which has an election this year, or in the US or anywhere else, it's almost as if the infrastructure of our conversation, the rules by which it's taking place, now emphasize emotion and anger and political division. You're the wrong side. 
You have extreme polarization now of a kind that you didn't have before in the United States. We want Groups of people now see one another. When they look across the aisle at the other political party, they don't see competitors, they see enemies, you know, people who are evil, who want to change the nature of their country. And you have that phenomenon really in, you know, I won't say every country, but in many countries. And some of the candidates with some of these authoritarian tendencies, no matter where they sit in their politics, are proving to obviously be incredibly popular, even though a lot of them undermine some of the core values of democracy. I mean, even in Trump's case, he talks about kind of ripping it up. How do we explain their popularity? You know, why do people vote in free and fair elections for candidates who seem to want to undermine some of those core values? I mean, that's a long, it's it's a hard question. There's an answer that is economic that's to do with um, the creation of inequality and the hollowing out of, you know, industry. There's a cultural explanation, you know, the way we talk about politics has changed. They believe that their country, this is very true in the United States, people believe the United States is a disaster, that it's chaos, that it couldn't be worse, that the situation is so bad that we need to we need a revolution and so that some of the language that you used to hear on the marxist left in the united states you now hear on the american far right you know we need to destroy everything and start again after this we're going to walk down and i'll be there with you we're going to walk down we're going to walk down anyone you want but i think right here we're going to walk down to the capitol you need to bring something to an end so that we can change everything. And, you know, where does that sense of chaos and catastrophe come from? And, of course, these things feed on each other. You'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. Politicians learn how to inculcate or to, um, or to talk to that kind of person or to that kind of mood. Of course, leaders are important. Individuals are important. I think if we had, if Trump were to lose the, the Republican primary and Nikki Haley were to win, I think you'd have a very different political conversation in the United States. So there are underlying factors that can then be taken advantage of by particular people. And there are also particular people who can worsen the conversation. But, you know, they interact with each other. And and you've written about democracy before and warned that any society can turn against democracy do you worry about how much trouble the whole world is in and if democracy is dying? My argument wasn't that democracy is dying, but that it's challenged and that we've taken it for granted, that we've assumed for too long that it was something like water coming out of the tap. You know, you don't have to think about the water, where it comes from. You just turn on the tap and it comes out. Whereas in reality, democracy, you know, you have to walk 10 miles to the well and take the water out and carry it back. And we were we didn't take care of it. We didn't think about it. We let a lot of institutions die. We let a lot of civic institutions die. And we didn't think about the consequences. And so there's nothing inevitable about democracy. Historically, in the past, most democracies have ended. But of course, it's not, neither is the, the decline isn't inevitable either. If people mobilize, if people understand the stakes, if people involve themselves in in politics and in campaigns and in creating institutions, then 
then it can survive. After the break, how one country brought its democracy back from the brink. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive the Saturday paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. And you've spent your career writing about the rise of what we might call a new kind of authoritarianism, where we see these autocratic individuals get elected and then threaten democracy. And you've actually seen how this happens up close in your adopted home of Poland, where your husband is a politician. Can you take us back to the time in Poland where things started to shift politically? So in 2015, a political party that calls itself the Law and Justice Party won an election, largely using a conspiracy theory. The day of the crash is seared in Polish history, one of those occasions when every poll remembers where they were. So there had been a plane crash in Poland a few years before. The Polish Air Force plane came down in Smolensk in Russia. It claimed not only the lives of all 96 passengers and crew on board, but a country's political and military elite. The president was killed in the plane crash, and the president's twin brother is the leader of the Law and Justice Party. Once the party won, they almost immediately began this procedure of state capture. For the first time since the end of communism, a democratically elected government has a majority and is busy implementing its own brand of patriotic Christian conservatism. They started with the courts. They illegally removed the leaders of the courts. They changed the way the judges were chosen. And who judges the judges? In short, judges appointed by the ruling party, hostile to those who oppose its judicial reforms. They took over state media. They made it into kind of party political, very, very partisan, very aggressive form of media. To many polls, TVP could just as well stand for Televisia propaganda. So it's as if ABC or the BBC had been taken over by one party and made into a, a kind of extremist version of itself. It has pushed back against issues like gay rights and has resisted EU initiatives to share the burden of migration. In short, they were pushing Poland in the direction of autocracy. They were trying to create a political system in which they would never lose. And honestly, when we we had an election here in Poland, I'm in Poland right now, we had an election last year, I was pretty sure that they would win again. And I think they believed their own propaganda and they thought they wouldn't lose. And so they were very unprepared when they did actually lose. 
Mm. It's interesting that you as, you know, someone who spends their life thinking and writing and talking about these issues, you were convinced, you know, that that they were going to get re-elected and then the opposite happened. (laughs) Why had you lost so much faith in the opposite outcome coming true? It's funny. I was just talking about this with some friends last night. I was convinced they would be re-elected. Then after the election, I was convinced they would try to hang on to power that they didn't manage to get themselves organized. I spent a lot of time looking at places where democracy has failed. And I know all, you know, I've seen the many different ways in which it can fail. But yes, I was pleasantly surprised by the power of this democratic spirit. And it was possible because of a very, very large turnout. So if normally we get about 60% of people voting, we got 74%. And there was an especially notable turnout among young people and especially young women. And that was a, turned out to be a complete game changer. And they voted for three different parties. There was a center-left party, a center party, and a center-right party. And those three parties created the coalition that was larger than this autocratic party. Now, actually, we're watching in Poland a kind of counter-revolution as the current prime minister and the current coalition try to put back together the constitution it's pretty messy. It's a big, long-running, difficult argument, and it's going to take a couple of years. But it it is a a kind of lesson, and the lesson is about engaging people and um, finding new ways to reach people and finding different ways of talking to people and reminding people of what it is that they can lose. Because I think what happened in Poland after eight years, people did begin to understand what they were losing, and they could see you know, they, they saw the creeping takeover of the institutions. They saw it at the local level. They saw it at the national level. And enough people were worried by it that they voted. Mm. And I guess it, you're saying it, it provoked enough anger amongst the electorate for them to then turn on that party and vote them out. I'm wondering if that is likely to be kind of a short-term reaction. You know, Trump was elected, but then he wasn't. But now... This year, he might be re-elected again. I'm wondering how, how long-lasting that anger that is provoked by some of these leaders really lasts. I don't, I don't think I can write you a rule for it, but it, you're right. It is a little bit why Trump lost. I mean, in, in some of the issues played out the same way as in Poland. People were sick of his chaos and they were tired of his anger. And of course, the abortion issue plays very strongly also in Poland and in the United States partly because people care about abortion rights, but also because it's particularly, again, for women and younger women and younger people, it's evidence of how the loss of power works. You know, you've lost power, you've lost control. You Here's a set of decisions you're not going to get to make because you have the, you know, this autocratic government. And so I think it had a big impact. But I think it's very important for people who live in democracies who are lucky enough to have a democratic political system because, of course, most people don't. It's very important to remain engaged, you know, find a way of being involved in politics. The societies that are best defended against populist language or authoritarian language are those that are the most engaged and where civic institutions are the strongest. So maybe there'll be some good news from this year's of elections. And from the good news, we should study the examples and, and spread them, bring them home. And thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Winnie Dunn has made a career out of helping others find their literary voice, and now it's her turn in the spotlight. 
This week on Read This, join me, Michael Williams, as I chat with Winnie about her debut. Find it wherever you listen. Also in the news today, Pakistan's former Prime Minister Imran Khan has been sentenced to 14 years in prison for corruption charges, just one day after a separate court gave him a 10-year prison sentence for leaking state secrets. Khan and his wife, Bushra Bibi, who has also been sentenced to 14 years in prison, had been accused of keeping and selling state gifts, including jewellery and watches. And approvals to export Australian-made military equipment to Israel are reportedly being stalled as concerns grow over the rising number of civilian casualties in Gaza. According to the ABC, a defence industry insider says the Albanese government appears to be deliberately going slow on approving Israeli military equipment requests, with many remaining unanswered. 7am is a daily show from The Monthly and The Saturday Paper. It's produced by Cara Jensen-McKinnon, Zoltan Fetcho and Shane Anderson. Our senior producer is Chris Dengay. Our technical producer is Atticus Basto. Our editor is Scott Mitchell. Sarah McVie is our head of audio. Eric Jensen is our editor-in-chief. Mixing by Andy Elston, Travis Evans and Atticus Basto. Our theme music is by Ned Beckley and Josh Hogan of Envelope Audio. I'm Ange McCormack. This is 7am. We'll be back again next week. <laughs>